everyone, and welcome to the Homicide Homegirls podcast, a true crime podcast examining the true crime cases that fascinate and intrigue us. I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. us. We can't wait to share the details of this wild episode with you. Hey, guys. Hey, y'all. Happy Wednesday. Welcome back. Can't believe it's February already. Well, it will be by the time this episode comes out. Yeah, this is, this, I can never, like, wrap my mind around. I know. The lag. Right. From recording to release. Right, because it's January, but it'll come out in February. Yeah. So, today we're going to discuss a case that's pretty famous, especially in Canada. Um, Talking, of course, about Paul, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka who were a Canadian couple who were ultimately responsible for the deaths of three young girls in the 1990s and were eventually dubbed the Ken and Barbie killers by the American media. I'm just going to call her out right now. Amanda has had no mm-hmm. idea who they were. And I was like, how are you even a true crime fan if you don't know who Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka are? Yeah, I know. So she's going to learn right along with everybody yep. else today. So Paul... Completely oblivious. Right. So, Paul and Carla were given this nickname because they were both really attractive people and they just didn't seem like the kind of people who would commit the heinous atrocities that they would eventually be tied to. So, this is, yeah, so it'll be interesting. Um, Before we get started, we wanted to give a quick shout out to another homegirl of the week. Our second one. Angela E. from Georgia. Hey, Angela. So, she's reached out to us numerous times, has given us really, really great feedback, and always shares our episodes on social media, spreads the word about our podcast. Mm -hmm. She actually told me that she has listened to our episodes multiple times, and honestly, that means so much. Right. Uh, I still don't know how to handle the fact that we have fans. I know, right? Like, people send us... Like, you really love us. I know. But I'm here for it. I know. I love it. Uh, We just wanted to say thank you, Angela, for being a fan and letting us know what you think. Everything that you have done for us is greatly appreciated. So, again, Thank you. Um, And, again, thank you to all of our listeners, really. Right. Uh, We started this kind of as, like, a hobby, pet project kind of thing, and I honestly did not expect anyone to listen. Um, We're up to 12,000 plays now? Yeah. Almost 12,000 plays, yeah. And I hate the sound of my own voice and... Um, and the but fact you know, that other people don't. Yeah, <laughs> the fact that other people want to listen. Um, yeah, especially in such like a saturated market. Market like there's so much, so many different true crime podcasts. So it's really hard to stand to out. stand out. Yeah. yeah. But um, on our Baton Rouge and DC Madam episode, we got 400 plays in a week, which is like monumental for us. Yeah. So we're growing. Growth. So, growth. Right. <laughs> so, um, Before we get started, I just wanted to give a quick disclaimer that this episode is kind of all over the place. Um, It just didn't make sense to do it chronologically like I like to do most of our episodes. Oh, I know that had to be hard for you. It was. But I'm going to backtrack a lot, but I felt like that was the best way, like, to tell the story. Yeah. You know, instead of just having, like, a timeline. Um, But, and here's your trigger warning. I know I don't usually give those because this is a podcast about murder, so I feel like a trigger warning is usually basically implicit. Mm-hmm. But the details of some of the murders in today's episode are truly horrifying and made me uncomfortable even writing this episode. Did you expect that? No. The, the no. details, like... And I knew a good bit about this case, but, like, researching and learning about it, like, the details of this case made my... Some of them made my skin crawl. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to put that out there. So, um... Yeah, and I kind of genuinely cannot wait for Amanda's reactions today because we've said this before. She doesn't, if I do a case, Amanda doesn't know the details about it. And if she does one, 
I don't know the details. So our reactions are a hundred percent genuine in the moment. Y'all are right. Like, you know, so I'm, I'm essentially an audience member, just like you, the listeners. So, right. So we're just going to jump right in. Um, so today we're going to start, um, June 29th, 1991. So while fishing in Lake Gibson, which is near the town of St. Catharines in Ontario, Canada, uh, some fishermen make a terrifying discovery and near the end, near one end of the lake, they notice concrete blocks that were partially submerged in the water mm-hmm. and they get closer to the blocks and they find what looks like pieces of human flesh sticking out of the concrete blocks. I'm trying to visualize. Yeah. Like, like I think of those like, like garden they, cinder blocks. Yeah. And like, well, like it was like a block, but like they encased body parts in oh, okay. the cement. Okay. Um, so the fishermen immediately contacted the Niagara Regional Police, who showed up to the scene and started searching the lake for clues. And in all, they located eight concrete blocks, each containing body parts. Oh my goodness! Right. So on the scene, police told reporters that they believed that the victim was a female between the ages of fourteen and twenty-four. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure how they came to that conclusion from just body parts encased yeah. in cement, but that's the um, the documentary I watched, that's what they said. Mm-hmm. Um, the actual news footage, that's okay. what they said. But eventually, the remains would be identified as that of 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey from the nearby town of Burlington. Um, Leslie had been missing for two weeks when her remains were located. And the details of her murder really struck fear into the hearts of residents right. of southern Ontario, I mean, they couldn't fathom who would murder a young girl, much less in such a gruesome way in this small, like, close-knit town. Yeah. You know? So, oddly enough, the same exact day that Leslie's body was discovered, a really young, attractive couple exchanged wedding vows in the town of Niagara on the lake, which is about 16 miles away. 21-year-old Carla Homoka and 26-year-old Paul Bernardo are seemingly the perfect couple, but... As we well know, things are not always what they appear to be. So... Do we know how long they were together prior to marriage? Uh, I get there. Yeah, I'll okay. talk about it. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm feeling Judith and Alvin vibes right now. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. I don't know offhand exactly how long it was before they were married. I think it was like a year, two or three years before they got married they were together. But this was their first murder. Okay, let me stop. There I go. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of weird that they got married. Coincidentally, the day, oh, the the day that her, her body, body was discovered. Yeah. Right. Spoiler alert, it was Paul and Carla that killed Leslie, so, obviously. I mean, we're talking like, about her. In so, I know this is getting a little graphic, but like, the body parts that were located, were they just extremities? Were they like, was it a torso? Was it a head? Or was it just hand, foot, arm, leg? I'm not sure. Okay. They just said body parts. I know. They didn't... Because I don't know how you would get a... Yeah, a whole, a whole torso or something. Or a whole head yeah. into a... I don't know how big the blocks were yeah, either, right. so I'm not sure. So, a little less than a year later, on April 16th, 1992, 15-year-old Kristen French went missing from her hometown of St. Catharines. Same town. Same town where Leslie's body was discovered, right? Two weeks later, on April 30th, 1992... A man coincidentally another two week period of being missing. Right. That's so weird. Right. A man who was searching for scrap metal finds the body of Kristen French in a ditch on the side of the road in Burlington. Which Burlington is where, is where, where Leslie was from. from. 
but, but found her body was found in St. Catharines. Kristen is from, yeah, Kristen is from St. Catharines, and her body was found in Burlington. So, Stomping grounds. Right. So Kristen had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and strangled to death. And there was something odd about the location of Kristen's body, though. Kristen's body was located less than a quarter mile from the cemetery where Leslie Mahaffey had been laid to rest less than a year earlier. Hmm. So, like, not only was there the connection of, you know, right. the, the two opposite, like, you know, where they were from, where the body was found, but she was that close, her body was that close to Leslie, the cemetery Resting where place. Leslie was, yeah. yeah. So, Canadian police decided to consult with an FBI profiler, Greg McCrary, because they suspected that these murders may have been connected. Which is weird, because they were found differently. Right. Like she was strangled and just dumped, whereas right. the other was dismembered. Dismembered, right. Which is not common. Right. But I I think because of... Well, I'm not... Okay. So, according to McCrary on the serial killer documentaries that I watched, quote, those crimes are very unusual to abduct and murder young women. And there was sort of a polarization here. One was abducted in Burlington and the body was in St. Catharines. The other was abducted in St. Catharines and the body was found in Burlington. That sort of connected the crimes geographically at Uh that point. End quote. So... Based on how vicious the attacks were and the location of the bodies, police began to believe that this was the work of a pretty experienced killer. I mean, to dismember somebody, you generally... Well, and I could be wrong, but I don't feel like you're going to dismember somebody on your first kill. I mean, you might, but I feel like that takes... Effort. Right. Like, I don't know. Um, Then the police received a tip from an eyewitness who reported seeing Kristen talking to two people before she disappeared. So then police began to suspect that the killer had an accomplice. He wasn't working alone. He or she. They got some pretty good leads. Right. So eventually, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka would be linked to the murders of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. But that's not all. Paul and Carla would also be connected to the murder of Carla's own sister. (gasps) Along with the rapes of more than a dozen other women in the southern Ontario area. So... Here comes that backtracking I mentioned. What the hell is going on? Uh, that's what that's what I was gonna say. Like I wanted to like set up what happened, and then we're gonna kind of like backtrack and talk yeah. a little bit about um, their history. Uh-huh. So now I want to talk a little bit about Paul Bernardo and his background and his history. So in the spring of 1988, there was a sexual predator and eventual rapist on the loose in Scarborough, which is a province in in Ontario, Canada, and is about 80 to 85 miles in an hour and a half drive from St. Catharines, which, if you remember, is where Leslie Mahaffey's body was found and where Kristen French lived. Mm-hmm. So, seven women were attacked by May of 1988. The attacker's MO was to grab women as they got off the bus or walk through the park, and like he would pull them behind bushes and sexually assault them. What the heck? Right. And in the beginning, the attacks consisted of fondling, but eventually... Oh, it always, yeah. Yeah, the attacker escalated and he became more violent. Um, The media began calling this attacker the Scarborough Rapist. And the rapist forced women to perform intercourse, oral sex, and sodomy. And victims were occasionally beaten as well. So, naturally, women around Scarborough were all terrified, like they could be next, because, I mean... I don't think there was a victimology. I think it was just... Like, it wasn't like all brunettes are all blonde. I yeah. don't believe. I think it was just like... Availability? Right. Or opportunity. Like, just would grab whoever. 
Um, so all the women who were attacked gave the Metropolitan Toronto Police Department statements, but none of them could provide a detailed description of the assailant because the women were all attacked from behind and never, like, clearly saw his face, which obviously was intentional. Uh Uh-huh. Um, all the women could tell police was that he was young and good-looking with light hair, um, and the attacker also forced all of his victims to call themselves degrading names such as slut or whore. And that the attacker instructed the women to call him King. Oh, jeez. Right, he one of those. So, in the fall of 1988, the Toronto police called an FBI profiler, Greg McCrary. They said 19, the, other, the other murders were in 92? 91 and 92. 92. Okay. Um, spoiler alert, same profiler who would eventually help the police with the murders of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. Right. Um, but over the next several months, McCrary was able to attribute four more attacks to the Scarborough rapist for a total of 11. Um, so at and, this point, he's acting alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he hadn't met Carla at this point yet. Um, I was going to ask who the mastermind was, like I did in the Yeah, he hadn't met her yet. So this is prior to them even meeting. So um, as the attacks became considerably more violent, police and McCrary began to become worried that the Scarborough rapist would eventually escalate yet again. But this time to murder because I mean generally oh, that's yep. yeah you got it just takes it's one not, victim to fight back enough for them to reach that next level right and then it becomes murder and then maybe they realize that they like that murder, or yeah. maybe raping people or sexually assaulting people is not enough yeah anymore you know that I've seen that happen mm-hmm. not personally obviously yeah but, you know I've, in cases yeah so FBI profiler McCurry created a profile to help police narrow down their search. And according to his profile, police were looking for someone in their early 20s who lives in the Scarborough area, likely with relatives, who is violent towards women and even towards women who he is in a relationship with. So now we're going to jump again and kind of talk about Carla and Paul's backgrounds and how they met. So Carla grew up in St. Catharines on the southern shore of Lake Ontario, and she was the oldest of three girls. And it was reported that she was pretty popular in high school and had several boyfriends. And she also worked at a, it was either a vet, I think it was a vet clinic during high school. Okay. And Paul was the youngest of three children and he had sort of a rough childhood. Um, Growing up, Paul's mother was verbally abusive. And when Paul was 16, he discovered that the man he spent his entire life believing with his father was not actually his biological father. Daddy issues? Yeah, so, I mean, it has a 16-year-old boy. Like, that's got to... That's already a rough time to begin with, so... Yeah. I I can just imagine what that did to his psyche. So, around that time, Paul... Around the time that Paul made this discovery, he began peeping into his female neighbor's windows while they undressed. But eventually, Paul's tendencies and sexual proclivities would escalate. And then Paul enrolled at the University of Toronto at Scarborough in September of 1983, And he was pretty well-liked by his friends and neighbors, and everyone reported that he seemed normal doing air quotes. They always do. Right. And Paul dated several girls in college, but they all reported that they broke up with him when their relationship became sexually abusive. I could never imagine. Um, Right. I guess after being, like, raised with all boys, Mm -hmm. for starters, um, I I just have that different personality type mm-hmm. 
And then now that I'm a trained women self-defense instructor, right. I'm, I'm like, come at me. Like, right. you know, like I don't ever really you want to You don't take anything happen. from anybody. Yeah. But I'm, I'm ready. Right. So when Carla Homolka first met Paul Bernardo, she was a 17-year-old high school student working part-time at a pet store. And Paul was 23 years old studying accounting at the University of Toronto ding, ding, ding. at Scarborough. And he was nearing graduation. Like, why y'all got to give accountants a bad name? <laughs> like, really? I'm offended. One bad apple. Right. So when Paul and Carla first met in the fall of 1987, three sexual assault attacks had already been linked to the Scarborough rapist. So they, they've got this profile <clears throat> of a Scarborough. They've just got to figure out who he is. Right. Right. So actually, now that I'm looking at the dates, um, he met. He So he met Carla in the fall of 87, but... In 88, he was still, he was in Scarborough raping women. So they were together while he was doing this. I wonder if she knew. I don't think she knew originally. Like, Love is she blind? knew later. Well, no, <laughs> I think she, she knew later. So, yeah. But I'll, I'll, I'll get into that. But like so, I said, love is blind. Right. It's okay, babe. I'll support you no matter what you do. Right. So, that's unhealthy, by the way. Yes. Anyway, so... On October 17, 1987, uh, while she was at a pet food convention in Scarborough, which is outside of Toronto, which that's where Paul went to school, um, Carla met Paul when he walked into um, the hotel restaurant where Carla and her coworker were having a late night snack. And friends of Paul and Carla have referred to the moment they met as, quote unquote, love at first sight. Like they were basically inseparable after that. I mean, that's a pretty big age difference, though. What's it, five years? Yeah. Not yeah, early. she was 17 and he was 23. But oh, five years. At that, no, at that, so earlier in the episode, you said 21 and 26. That is when okay. they got married. But yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. But, but 17, at and, 17 and 23, like that's a that's bigger. Six. You know, like it makes yeah. it. It's five years sounds like. It sounds worse when you're younger. Younger, right? Yeah, because it's illegal. Right. So Carla quickly began to believe that Paul was the man of her dreams, and over the next 18 months, Paul made the. Uh, you know, 80 to 85 mile trek from Scarborough to St. Catharines to visit Carla several times a week. I'm wondering, like, was she so blind to him because she was young and naive and immature and brainwashed? Maybe. All the above. Check, Maybe. check, check. Right. But much like Carla, her family adored Paul and thought he was perfect for her. She graduated from high school in the spring of 89. And not long after this, in the fall of that year... Carla began telling friends that Paul was verbally abusive towards her, but she always found a way to forgive him. And in December of 1989, Paul and Carla took a romantic trip to Niagara Falls where Paul popped the question and proposed and Carla happily accepted. And they set their wedding date for the spring of 1991. So, that's a typical controlling Man, you know, the moment he starts acting up and she's not having it, oh, babe, here's a ring. Right. I'll propose and you'll forget everything. Yeah. Because it's every girl's dream to have a big wedding and get married. and Except mine. (laughs) Except (laughs) yours. (laughs) So, on May 29th, 1990, police released a composite sketch of the Scarborough Rapist to the media and to the public. And when the sketch was released, several of Paul Bernardo's best friends thought the sketch really resembled him. Oh, wow. So they called, you know, they called the Toronto police saying that the sketch has a strong resemblance to Paul. Actually, let me pull this up. You got big friends, my dude. 
no. No, I know. <laughs> like uh, you said, if you see something, say something. Right. Like, Let me. I'm um, a ratting. <laughs> oh my god. Let me see if um I can find this comparison because it's absolutely like insane. It really oh, the does. Sketch to him. Yeah, it really does look like him. Oh, he's distinctive. It yeah. was not cute. <laughs> like, like you said, they called him the Ken and Barbie killer, but like he. Well, that's not a. That's not. A, I mean, they are. I mean, they are attractive. I mean, not like Ken and Barbie level attractive. I wouldn't have called them that, but you know. Both have blonde hair, blue eyes. Yeah, so I think that's probably why society so. probably labeled them. Yeah, so, like I said, the sketch looks like him. Like, I'll post that side by side, because... Yeah, he does. It looks... It's the sketch eerie. The very spot on. Yeah, like, it's eerie. So, in November of 1990, police brought Paul in for questioning, and they obtained a DNA sample, and the sample was sent to the Center of Forensic Sciences in Toronto, where it's put on a shelf, along with hundreds of other DNA samples awaiting testing. Oh, no. Like I said, this is 1990. DNA in 1990 was still kind of in its... (laughs) The year we were both born. (laughs) Shut up. Um, uh, So, DNA was still kind of in its infancy stages, so the process of testing DNA took a lot longer than it would today in 2020. Right. 30 years later. So, I mean, it's... Easy with that number, girl. I know. I know. (laughs) So, around the time Paul was brought in for questioning by police, he suddenly up and moved from Scarborough to St. Catharines to be with his fiance Carla. Um, Did she know about him going into questioning or we don't know? I'm not sure. Um, so I'm assuming he graduated and moved. So Paul and Carla were living with Carla's parents until they could get a place of their own. So mysteriously the sexual assaults in Scarborough stopped when Paul moved away. Would you look at that? Right. But sexual assaults began to occur in the St. Catharines area. He moved away to almost run, kind of. Right, and avoid suspicion. But he's stupid. Because he's doing it. Yeah. And this is where it gets kind of rough. So, like, Carla and her family never would have suspected that he was responsible for these attacks. And as I mentioned before, like, her entire family adored Paul, especially Carla's youngest sister, 15-year-old Tammy. And Tammy came to look up to Paul as, like, a big brother. Mm Mm-hmm. So, but soon, Paul began to fantasize about taking Tammy's virginity. What a freaking monster. And, oh no, it gets better. And then he's, well, not better. Worse. Worse. It gets worse. Yeah. And he starts to pressure Carla to help him take Tammy's virginity because that is the one thing that Carla could not give, give Paul herself. I'm assuming she wasn't a virgin when uh-huh. they met. So, finally, Carla agrees to drug her younger sister... So that Paul can have sex with her. Well, rape her, really. Yeah, not consensual. And as this wasn't bad enough, Carla thought of this as her Christmas present to Paul. I told you, this was terrible. And we're just getting our toes wet. Yeah, like we're just starting. This. And she's still 17 to 18 maybe at this point. No. No, in 90. No, she's no, 20. She's probably 19 or 19 maybe. Freaking lunatic. Right. Oh, I gotta watch my mouth here. So, yeah. I really don't want to mark this episode as explicit. Um, So, on December 23rd, 1990, Paul and Carla put their plan into action. And Carla's, I guess, like, hey, tonight's the night. Like, I'm going to give you your Christmas present. First of all, no one's virginity is a 
a gift. A gift. And it's not anyone else's to, to give. give. But anyway, this makes me angry. So, Paul and Carla invited Tammy to stay up late with them once the rest of the Homolka family has gone to bed and have cocktails with them. But what Tammy doesn't know is that Carla laced her drink with sleeping pills that Carla purchased for this specific reason. Her 15-year-old sister. That's insane. I'm, um, like, I'm like just sitting here thinking like she was so submissive to him. Right. That she was willing to to do that to her own sister. Right. Like it's just... It's really upsetting. This is versus this is Tammy. Aww. Yeah. So, you know, she drugged her sister with sleeping pills, but Carla keeps her sister unconscious during this assault using a drug that she stole from the vet <gasps> clinic where she was working. She soaked a rag in halothane, which according to drugbank.ca is quote a general inhalation anesthetic used for induction and maintenance of general anesthesia. It reduces the blood pressure and frequently decreases the pulse rate and depresses respiration, end quote. Uh So she soaked a rag in that and held it over her sister's face. So she wouldn't wake up. Yeah. Oh, my God. Even after, on top of giving her I know where you're going with this. And and she was drinking. I know exactly where you're going with this. So Carla held the rag over Tammy's face while Paul raped her younger sister. And as if all this wasn't bad enough... The entire assault takes place while the rest of the Homoka family is asleep upstairs. Two days before Christmas. Yes. So, and on top of that, Paul videotaped the entire thing. That becomes a theme. Like, he's obsessed with videotaping everything. Yeah. So, once Paul was done raping Tammy, he orders Carla to rape her own sister. Uh-uh. So she does. <gasps> All on video. After Carla rapes her sister, Tammy begins to vomit and aspirate on her own vomit. So the couple quickly dressed Tammy and called 911. And when paramedics arrived at the Homoka home, Paul and Carla told them that they had tried to revive Tammy after she passed out from drinking. Amanda's jaw is on the floor. Like, like I can't. Like I'm gonna start drooling here in a second because I can't. Oh my god! I told you this made me so uncomfortable and like sick to my stomach. But I mean, in order to tell the story, you kind of have to. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. So Tammy was rushed to the hospital where she was pronounced dead in the early morning hours of Christmas Eve, 1990. Wow. Despite doctors finding a burn mark on Tammy's face where Carla held the halothane-soaked rag. Officials ruled that Tammy died from natural <gasps> causes. Oh my god. Right. Like, what? And, of course, Paul and Carla had an explanation for the burn mark on Tammy's face. It was rug burn caused by their attempts to revive her. What? Did you turn her over on her stomach and that's how she got the rug? Like, that's just a stupid explanation. I know. I'm, explanation. I'm like trying to tell myself this was 1991 or whatever. You 1990. Know, Come on. I know. So, Carla's parents viewed Tammy's death as just a tragic accident from drinking too much. At 15 years old. Yeah. I mean, some kids do. I know, but... And what about what about the sleeping pills in her system? Did they not conduct they, an actual maybe, autopsy? Yeah, or maybe they didn't do a drug panel or anything. A toxicology report. I couldn't think of that word. Oh. So, Tammy and Carla's parents had no reason to suspect anything more sinister had transpired, which... 
I would have been like, hold up. That's why, because me and you are different. We, yeah. we, we dissect everything. Right. So, <clears throat> the following month in January 1991, Carla and Paul moved out of her parents' home and into their own home in nearby Port Dalhousie, which is a small town near St. Catharines. And to everyone else, like, Paul and Carla just seemed like the perfect idyllic couple, but away from prying eyes of their family and friends and behind closed doors, Paul's dark side Mm -hmm. begins to emerge. And he starts teasing Carla that he is the Scarborough rapist, which is like he asked if she knew. He starts telling her that he is. I mean, after that Christmas Eve incident. She should have known. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she knew something was not. Like, I just can't that she went along with it. Like, like. I'm sorry. I can sit here and say if that was me, if that was me, like, yeah. But and I know you can't judge until you're in that situation. But I can like wholeheartedly say, say I would never drug my sister. I would right. never, you know what I'm saying? Right. Rape anybody, right? Let alone a family member, right? Oh man, it's like, it's uncomfortable even saying what I just said. I know, and somebody that trusts you, and yeah, ugh, makes my skin crawl. Mm-hmm. Um, so Paul also starts abusing Carla physically and. Carla doesn't even want to think of leaving because she's terrified that Paul will tell her parents about her involvement in the death, well, murder, really, mm-hmm. of her sister Tammy, you know? So, um, and like we already discussed, Paul had provided his DNA to the Toronto police more than two months earlier than that in relation to the Scarborough Rapist investigation, mm-hmm. but his DNA had still not been tested. So, on... June 15th, 1991, just two weeks before Paul and Carla are scheduled to get married, uh, Paul wakes Carla up in the middle of the night and tells her that he has a surprise. 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey, who he had abducted from her backyard by luring her to his car with a cigarette. Can you imagine being woken up by your fiancé so two weeks wait, before is your he wedding? a complete lunatic, but he's also a child predator. Mm-hmm. Because of Tammy and now Leslie and... Kristen. Yes, Kristen. So, it was Paul's intention to keep Leslie as a sex slave. Totally normal. Right. So, Paul and Carla hold Leslie captive in their home, repeatedly assaulting and raping her while recording the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And after less than 24 hours, Paul and Carla strangled Leslie, then dismembered her body and placed the pieces in concrete blocks. Where, like, they encased her in concrete and then dumped the blocks into nearby Lake Gibson in St. Catherine. So, two weeks after Leslie's murder, Paul and Carla get married in front of a hundred of their friends and families as planned on June 29th, 1991. And, like we said, that's the same day that Mm -hmm. Leslie's body was found. So, although Paul and Carla were married, Paul's sexual preferences for young girls and or virgins didn't go away. Like, that kind of thing doesn't just... Right. Disappear. Just because you got married. Like, that's an underlying issue. Right. So, Paul begins to demand that Carla bring some of her sister Tammy's friends to their home so they can drug and sexually assault them in the same way that they assaulted Tammy. That's what the concrete blocks look like. Oh, so they're kind of big. It's not... It's like... like, To me, it looks like they actually made... Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think they mixed the concrete and poured it. Yeah. I guess. Because, of course, when I first read it, I'm thinking, like, cinder blocks. Those but little you can't, garden ones, Yeah, you know? but you can't. Like, uh, yeah. But, yeah. But anyway, so. I don't so, understand the mind of killer, but okay. 
Yeah, so Paul wants Carla to bring some of her sister Tammy's friends to their home so they can drug and sexually assault them just like they did to Tammy. So, at Paul's request, Carla lures several young girls into their, into their home over the next year. And just like they did with Tammy, the newlyweds drug and sexually assault these girls, but they survived, regaining consciousness with little to no memory of the assault. Oh, wow. And... But there's recordings. Yep. As it, like I said, as has become pretty standard with Paul, some of these attacks are videotaped, which seems to be his way of keeping, like, trophies or mementos, which is Serial Killer 101. Yeah. You know, they... Without all. the killing part. Well, like, in this... Right. Those, right. These later cases. So, on April 16th, 1992, Paul and Carla go for a drive with the sole intent of bringing home a sex slave. And when they're a few miles from their home, they spot 15-year-old Kristen French as she's walking home from school. And they decide that this is who they want. So the couple pulled into a church parking lot and waited for her to pass. Like, the church parking lot was ahead of her. Mm -hmm. And as she passes them, Carla stops her and asks for directions, like even holding a map. Like, really playing play, the part. Right. And when Kristen stops to give them directions, Paul and Carla grab her and shove her into their car and then drive back to their home. And it doesn't take long for Kristen French to be reported missing and local police begin to investigate. Which, I mean, a 15-year-old girl walking home from school, like, your parents know what time you're supposed to be home. So, based on eyewitness statements, police believe that Kristen was abducted from that church parking lot. And according to the eyewitnesses, they saw Kristen speaking to two people in the parking lot. So, the witness also tells police that they saw the three drive away in a beige Camaro. I love when people pay attention. Not that it saved her life, but... No. So, due to the public fear related to the abduction, the Niagara Regional Police assembled a team of investigators uh, that they called the Green Ribbon Task Force. And they examined the eyewitness statements regarding the beige Camaro and also began communicating with FBI profiler Greg McCurry again. Mm -hmm. Like, there was, like, a billboard and everything. Like, have you seen this Camaro, this type of car. car? But police were on the hunt for this beige Camaro, but they would later learn that this was not a solid lead because Paul Bernardo drove a gold Nissan. So they're spending all their time looking for this for, ca- beige mm, Camaro. Oh, you would not believe um, when I worked in 911. How, like, when you, okay, do you have a vehicle description? People are way off. I, I don't, maybe I'm just really observant, but I can, if I'm driving at night and I see headlights in my mirror, in my rear view, I can tell you what kind of car it is. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't, I'm weird. I'm not a car person at all. I guess I'm just observant, mm-hmm. but most of the time I can at least tell you the make. Hmm. That's interesting. So just pay attention, please. Yeah, but I mean, we've seen that before, like faulty eyewitness yeah. statements. Cause I mean, people generally don't remember everything. Mm-hmm. So, and then like I said, it made them go in the wrong direction Mm -hmm. so yeah so it didn't take long for the media to link the disappearances of Kristen french and then the murder of leslie mahaffey Mm -hmm. less than a year earlier and much like he did for the scarborough rapist greg mccrary composed a profile of the suspect which was very similar Uh to his rapist profile Uh um he predicted that the suspect would be a white male in his late 20s with a history of violent sexual crimes a history of domestic violence, and that he would beat his romantic partners. So, Paul and Carla held Kristen French captive for several days, and Kristen is repeatedly raped, sodomized, and beaten. 
In keeping with their MO, the assaults are videotaped to add to the couple's sick collection of videos. Do they not realize that, like, once they get busted, they're done-done with that kind of evidence? You would think. People are stupid. Criminals are dumb. <laughs> yeah. Criminals are dumb. <laughs> Facts. <laughs> so, finally, Kristen is strangled and dumped in a ditch 30 miles away in the neighboring town of Burlington, just a quarter mile from the cemetery where Leslie Mahaffey was laid to rest a little less than a year prior. So... About eight months later, in January of 1993, Carla is so severely beaten by Paul with a flashlight that she ends up in the emergency room. Oh, wow. And I will try to post this picture, but it's bad. Like, it's disturbing. Like, it must have been, like, a heavy duty. Yeah. He beat her with a flashlight. Well, yeah, but they have those. Um, let me see. I'll show you this. Yeah. <gasps> Holy... Both of her eyes are blackened. Her, like, the bridge of her nose is bruised. Right. Like, her eyes are black and probably worse than... It's probably a broken nose, huh? Yeah, and then she also had... I don't know. But she also had a broken rib and other severe bruising. So, after this attack, and less than two years of marriage, Carla decided that was enough. And she moved out and left Paul. Well, it's a little too late for that once you've committed all these crimes with him. True. So, around the same time, the DNA samples collected in relation to the Scarborough rapist case are finally tested, yes. including the sample provided by Paul Bernardo. And it's no surprise to us, but Paul is identified as the Scarborough rapist. And once authorities realize that Paul Bernardo, who was definitively linked as being the Scarborough rapist when that was now living in Port Dalhousie, near where Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey were murdered. Uh-huh. Naturally, like he becomes suspect. Yeah. yeah, he becomes suspect number one. So once he was linked via the DNA, the Toronto police contacted Carla and requested an interview to discuss the results of the DNA test. And because police already suspected that there was a connection between the Scarborough rapist and the murders of Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey, they brought along members of the Green Ribbon Task Force with them to interview Carla. Mm-hmm. And after, Doubled up. Yeah, so after the interview with police, Carla finally comes clean and confesses everything to her family, Ooh. including the truth about what she and Paul did to Tammy. I don't understand how she's walking and living with herself. Like, right. Yeah. So she confides in her parents that she's afraid that the police are close to learning of her and Paul's involvement in the murders of Kristen and Leslie. So following her parents' advice, Carla hires an attorney and tells him that Paul is a Scarborough rapist. And she goes on to admit that she and Paul were, were responsible for the deaths of Leslie Mahaffey, Kristen French, and her own sister, Tammy Homolka. So this part is... She's gambling. Huh? Yeah, she's trying to cut a deal yep so carla tells police that she would only agree to testify against her husband if she received a reduced sentence for herself at least she's not asking for immunity because that'd be freaking stupid like yeah not full immunity so carla made a full confession to police and confirmed that paul is the scarborough rapist and she pinned the full blame for the three girls deaths solely on paul probably at the advice of her attorney, attorney. right like she was basically saying her I guess defense she was saying that 
I was scared of him. Oh, um, yeah. He beat me. Like, Which is I a good did. argument. Yeah, like, I mean, that happens. Like, you know, she's like, I did what he wanted because I was scared. I like, mean, he was he, physically yeah. abusive. I mean, it's I mean, totally It's documented. Yeah. That, you know, so. Um, Carla told police that all the proof they would need against Paul could be found in Paul and Carla's oh. home on the videotapes. Yikes. Paul Bernardo is arrested on February 17, 1993. And upon his arrest, police obtain a search warrant and begin searching Paul and Carla's home for Did any evidence. Did he have evidence. any clue that she was ratting him out? I'm not sure. They were separated, so I don't know. Oh, maybe know. not. So police were searching for any evidence to conclusively tie Paul and Carla to the murders. And after a 71-day search, police could not find the tapes that Carla swore would show the assaults on Tammy, Leslie, and Kristen. 71 days of searching one home. Yes. And they could not find the tapes anywhere. That she swore existed. That's insane. So, without the tapes, Carla's word is all investigators have if they want to move forward with charges and against Paul. And that's usually not enough. Well, as a result, prosecutors agreed to a plea deal with Carla Homolka because they did not have direct evidence linking Paul to the murders. And the deal is kept a secret from the public. Uh-oh. They don't want it. Right. People so, on June 28th, 1993, so, like, all this started in January. He was arrested in February, mm-hmm. and then... Now June, she's June, going to court. Yeah, Carla went to court to face the charges against her. Which we don't know at this point. Right. And, because that's the deal. Yeah, and reporters were allowed in the courtroom. However, they were only allowed to report on the charges and resulting sentence. And apparently this publication ban is very uncommon in Canada, so naturally many reporters were frustrated, but... The court probably knew that there was going to be public outrage, uh-huh. so that's why they did it. But ultimately, Carla received two 12-year sentences for manslaughter related to her role in the murders of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. And these sentences were to be served concurrently, which just means at the same time. So not 24 years. 12 years. 12 years. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, at this time, she's telling them all they want to hear. Right. And she's telling them, like, oh, um, he forced me to do this. Like, as if she were a victim herself. Yes. Yes. And Carla Homoka is sent to Kingston Prison for Women and in August 1993. While in prison, she filed for divorce. And she didn't see Paul again until she testified against him at his trial almost two years later. So they, like, expedited her trial. Right. Well, yeah. I guess it wasn't really a trial. It was just a plea, like, so she agreed to. So now we're going to talk about Paul's trial, which began on May 18th, 1995, which at the time was one of the most anticipated murder trials in Canadian history. Mm -hmm. So Paul Bernardo pled not guilty on nine charges related to the murders of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. Wait, time out. So she got the two 12-year sentences for those two girls, but nothing for her sister? No. Because this murder trial was not for Tammy. This murder... Well, okay. for Paul... Yeah, she didn't... I don't even think she had any charges against her sister. Eventually, when Carla came out, I'm pretty sure they, they exhumed Tammy's body and did... Um, An actual autopsy, yeah. toxicology, whatever. Or, or, I guess. Whatever they can yeah, do at that point. Yeah, whatever they could do, yeah. Since it had been however many... Three years at that point, almost. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't think Carla was ever charged with anything... Um, Related. If related to Tammy's death, if I remember correctly, after 
Paul's trial for the murders of Kristen and Leslie, he was charged with, I think it was manslaughter for Tammy. Yeah. That is such a cop out. Right. Oh, man, I hate that. Right. So, like I said, Paul Bernardo pled not guilty on nine charges related to the murders of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. And these charges included kidnapping, unlawful confinement, aggravated sexual assault, and murder. That's weird how they worded unlawful confinement because usually it's false imprisonment. It's probably the same thing. Yeah. So the first day of Paul's trial started with a bombshell. Prosecutors presented the previously unlocated videotapes that were found in the couple's home. Wait, 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 wait. So they were... He was hiding them? Well, so the documentary I watched didn't elaborate on, like, how the tapes mysteriously appeared over two years after the searches at the home that Paula and Carla shared. Um, So I started doing some digging, and I found a few different places that said that about a week after police finished their search of the home, so, like, May of 93, Bernardo called his lawyer from jail and told him that the videotapes could be found in the home hidden in a ceiling light fixture in an upstairs bathroom. And she didn't know that? I guess she didn't. Or maybe she did know that, and she didn't tell them purposely, because you'll see why in a minute. Oh, no. So, after this phone call, Paul Bernardo's lawyer, Ken Murray, went to the home and found the tapes where Paul said they would be. And instead of turning these tapes over to the proper authorities, Murray just kept them. He's the attorney? Yes. Of course he did. He's for, I mean, I mean, he probably, so, did he submit them into discovery? No. So they were so, never even brought up in court? When he, when he found the tapes, he never said anything. So fast forward to like a year later, Murray requested to withdraw from Paul's case in September of 94 and Murray is replaced by John Rosen. So Murray gave the tapes to Rosen who eventually did turn them over to the police. So like the second lawyer oh. turned them over, but like. Pause. Like, how is this not a crime? For the lawyer to, you know, have these tapes and, like, that, that, Um, the tapes that, of, like, his client murdering and raping these young girls. Some could argue that's obstruction of justice, but. Well, yeah, like, I mean, how did he not get arrested when all this came out? Like, I mean, what do we always say? If you see something, say something. Yeah. Come on. I mean, yeah, he, was, big... he was he uh, he was was eventually charged with attempted obstruction of justice. Oh, he was? Oh, yeah, but he was acquitted in 2000, so, like, yeah. insert eye roll. Yeah. But, so, and like I said, Carla might have known where they were, but she had a reason to not want those tapes to come out before she cut a deal because the tapes she revealed a very different version of events. The tape showed that she was way more involved in the sexual assault and murders than she originally led investigators to believe. But that also goes back to her being scared and, I don't know, I'm not trying to justify it, but but she was smart the way she did it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, she was smart. She's the most hated woman in Canada. Well, because, yeah. I mean, 12 years, that's what she got. So, the... Like, the tapes have never been released to the public for obvious reasons, but there are some transcripts out there that you can find, Uh and I came across one of them, and it was not a transcript of the actual murder. It was, like, I think the title of it is, like, Fireside Chat. So, it's basically Carla and Paul, like, having sex in front of the fire, like, but they're talking about murder, the murders, and she is very complicit 
in the murders. I will not, I'm, I can't bring myself to read the, these transcripts on this episode because it is, it made my skin crawl reading it. But if you Google it, you Google like Paul Bernardo tapes, Fireside there's like Fireside Chat Fireside or whatever, you can find the transcript if you're interested. Um, there's also, I found it on a, on a Reddit uh-huh, thread. I found a link on the Reddit, a Reddit thread. So if you if you are so inclined to go read it, mm-hmm. go ahead. I'm not gonna post a link in our show notes because I just. But yeah, if you want to Google it, be my guest. But yeah, she was more involved. She was complicit. She was involved. So yeah, she just take my word. She was. She was involved. She knew what she was doing. She was not this battered wife. Yeah, it, yes, it, he it, did beat it her. It wasn't like a victim. Situation. Right. Like, yes, he did beat her and abuse her, too. But it was not this whole, oh, I did it because I was scared. She did it because she wanted to do it. Damn. And she wanted to please him. Which is also not a defense. I mean. No, it's not. So, anyway. Ugh. Makes my skin grow. So, Paul Bernardo's defense was basically this, that his crime stopped short of murder. He fully admitted that he was guilty of sexual assault, but he said that Carla was the one who actually murdered Leslie and Kristen. Huh. He's got an argument there, huh? Right. So, the judge decided that the jury would be allowed to watch the videotapes, but in order to spare the families, the video would not be played for the whole, like, gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, only the audio of the videotapes would be heard by the courtroom. That's still a lot. That's still, yeah. So, for uh, like I said, for obvious reasons, these videotapes have never been released to the public, ever. And I don't think they should have been. I no. mean, especially the, the poor families. I, I know. Mean, even, like you said, even to hear that, like... So, the, yeah. So, they have videos of the murders and the sexual assault. Well, not necessarily the murders, but the sexual assaults, right? Mm-hmm. But they also have videos of Paul and Carla... Just like being intimate yeah. and weird and talking about what happened yeah previously mm-hmm. okay. so on september 1st 1995 after deliberating for eight hours the jury found paul bernardo guilty on all nine charges against him including two first degree murder charges for the murders of leslie mahaffey and Kristen french and paul was subsequently sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 Whoa, years she got lucky yeah she did so Paul also admitted to 14 rapes and agreed to be, as like the Scarborough rapist, uh-huh. and he agreed to be declared a dangerous offender, which is a designation usually reserved for those who could potentially pose a significant danger to the public if released from custody. But which he ain't going nowhere. Obviously. Yeah. Like, obviously you're a dangerous offender. So, once the trials of Paul Bernardo and Ken Murray, the lawyer, uh-huh. concluded and the videotapes were no longer needed as evidence, all known copies of the videotapes were destroyed by police in 2001. Good. Yeah, and the police kept transcripts of the tapes, but the tapes themselves were no longer necessary. Right. Um, according to a 2001 CBC.ca article, Tim Danson, who's a lawyer for the families of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French, said, quote, as long as the videotapes and other sensitive materials remained in existence, Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French continued to be violated, exploited, and harmed. They are finally free with their dignity and humanity restored. I can definitely agree with that. Right. Apparently, the videotapes depicted the attacks on Leslie Mahaffey, Kristen French, Tammy Hamalka, Carla's sister, and an unknown girl identified as Jane Doe. But like I said, there were also like other tapes of them just talking and or you know like you said having sex being intimate whatever 
If that's what you want to call it. Yeah, if that's what you want to call what they were doing. Um, And like I said, the reason I didn't want to read that transcript of the fireside chat is because it described, like, what they were doing. Oh, no. Like, it, oh, gross. And to think that that, the, the acts that they committed turned them on. Right, and that they were just talking about it, like, oh, you remember the time, like, we did this? Oh, like, yeah, geez. it was it was bad. But after everything came out during Paul's trial, Carla's plea deal came to be known as one of the worst in Canadian history. Obviously. She, yeah. And the media dubbed it the deal with the devil. Yeah. So. She's probably out today, isn't she? I'll get there. So, a year after Paul Bernardo's trial, the Ontario court released the results of their six-month-long inquiry into the police handling of Paul Bernardo's case, and the investigation found that that the investigation was hampered by numerous mistakes, and they concluded that Paul Bernardo fell through the cracks and avoided detection by moving from one community to another, like Scarborough to St. Catharines. Yeah, and today, that, like, it it would go undetected, but not for as long as it did. Right probably a day or so right so since the inquiry canadian authorities have implemented a system specifically geared toward tracking serial predators with their main goal being to improve communication between police departments which i think now like in 2020 police departments generally talk a little bit more well with the national crime information center ncic it makes it very easy i don't yeah and all the like national databases well the thing is is ncic a thing in canada i don't know We'd have to... It's National Crime Information Center, so that would only mean America. America. That's a good question. Yeah. I'm sure they have something. Uh, you know what? We might get international. For some reason, I feel like I... Like... I would, like, get queries back from out of the country. Huh. That's something I'm going to have to look into now. So now, we're going to talk about Carla's life after prison. Carla was released from prison at the age of 35 on July 4th. 2005 after serving her full 12-year sentence so although she served her full 12-year sentence most of canada believe that she still got off easily for the part she played in these murders which retweet like right agree 1000 percent so upon her release from prison carla moved to quebec for a time and assumed the name carla leanne teal so apparently like leanne is her middle name okay um and it was then reported that she moved to Guadalupe in 2007 with her new husband, Terry Bordelay, who was her lawyer's brother. So, while in Guadalupe, Carla and her husband had three children. The first was a baby boy born in February of 2007. And she also began going by the name Leanne Bordelay during this time period. So, she's either Leanne Teal or, like, Leanne Bordelay. I don't... Or I that's what she goes by. Carla Leanne Teal. Yeah, but I think she dropped the car. Like, I think oh. she now she goes by, like, just Leanne. Uh-huh. But, I mean, everyone in Canada knows what she looks like. Yeah. Um, so, Carla is currently said to be living in Montreal, Canada, which is about 400 miles and a six and a half hour drive from her hometown of St. Catharines, which, obviously, she couldn't go back yeah. there. Um, and in early 2019, Carla what? was photographed volunteering at her kid's school and people collectively lost their mind. I would too. So she was a child predator just as much as right. he was. So I guess it's. I think it's my understanding that she was no longer allowed to volunteer anymore. Um, and this is kind of crazy. There's a Facebook group called Watching Carla Homolka. 
where people will discuss what she's up to or post pictures of, or articles of, like, where she is. I'm going to follow. Yeah, I looked at the page, and it's mostly just people, like, voicing their frustrations that this monster is walking around with her freedom. I, I, I can't say I disagree. I mean, I get the outrage like I do. Yeah. Because, I mean, like you said, she was just as involved. I will send you the link to that transcript, and I promise you, after reading it, you will be even madder than, like, you are with her. Like, because it's just disgusting that she's out. Like, oh, 10,000 people like this page. Yeah. So, this is a little bit off the rails. So, in June of 2015, Paul Bernardo somehow released via Amazon. He's still incarcerated. Yes, while in jail. He released a via Amazon a self published fictional ebook that he wrote. It was a 631 page ebook and it was titled A Mad World Order and was offered for the Kindle price of $7.77. And according to a November 2015 NationalPost.com article, the novel was about, quote, a plot by Russians to launch an attack on the United States in a bid to return Russia to a world power, end quote. What? Right. The book contained very graphic depictions of violence, which naturally led to public outcry. Many people were outraged that an inmate serving jail time for rape and murder would be allowed to release a novel. And make money off of it. However, so long as the novel does not mention the inmate's specific crimes, thereby allowing them to profit from his crimes, it is completely legal. Although it may be legal, many wondered if it was moral or ethical that inmates are allowed to publish books at all. And his lawyer has even said, I don't know how he published it because his lawyer didn't do it. So, okay, this is kind of off the rails, but because it was self-published and he did everything himself, he's not able to make money off of it? No, he he can. As long as he's not profiting off of his crimes. Okay, he's so. He's supposed to be. Chris Watts, movie here, book here, but he's not the one organizing it, but he's still going to make money, right? No. No, Chris Watts, so like. Obviously, we're doing a podcast. We don't make any money, but if we did, he wouldn't get any. He's not allowed to like Paul Bernard, right? But Lifetime or or no, they no, they cannot because I know that's a that's a common concern. Is like, oh, I don't want her to get a Casey Anthony. I don't want her to get a Lifetime movie. Well, she's not convicted, so yeah, that's different. So that is different. So but like but, Chris Watts, but he like, will not get a dime because okay. you cannot profit off of your crimes. Okay. Because that's, that's always a concern. Yeah. Like, I hope he doesn't make any money off of it. But if he's convicted... You cannot make money off of your crimes, no. Okay. But Casey Anthony is that that gray area. Because she's not convicted. Yeah. She's acquitted. Hmm. I don't want to talk about her. I know. So, as a result of the outrage, Amazon did remove the ebook in November of 2015. And according to a November 2015 NationalPost.com article, quote, The Correctional Service of Canada said the book did not relate to Bernardo's specific crimes, but it couldn't explain how it was published as federal inmates have no access to the internet or email, end quote. So, uh, it's a mystery. I don't know how he... And if it's self-published, like, is that mm-hmm. specifically him? Or do, was he communicating with somebody? I don't know. I still don't on know. On his behalf? So, that was... I mean, that was pretty interesting to me, but I wasn't able to find any definitive answers on exactly how So, he's the not making any more money anymore off of it? No, Amazon it. pulled it. So, according to the same November 2015 NationalPost.com article I just referenced, Bernardo's lawyer told Global TV that he was aware his client was writing a book, 
but it didn't say whether or not the lawyer was aware of how the book was published. I don't think he was. I mean, they could just say, I'm writing a book am I free for when I get out. Or, well, he's not ever supposed well, to get out. Yeah. Well, he got life, life with no chance for parole up to 25 years. Oh. Which, that's a good segue into parole. So, Paul Bernardo applied for day parole in 2015. And I didn't know this, but according to the Correctional Service Canada website, day parole is a type of parole that, quote, provides offenders with the opportunity to participate in ongoing community-based activities. Ordinarily, the offender resides at a correctional institution or community residence. Offenders are also granted day parole in order to prepare, prepare for full parole and statutory release. Offenders who are serving life or indeterminate sentences are eligible to apply for day parole three years before their full parole eligibility date or after three years, whichever is greater, end quote. For obvious reasons, this request is denied. Was he even in that time frame? Yeah, um, he got arrested February 17th, 1993. So he, yeah. 25 years would be 2018, so yeah. three years with 2015. Yeah. Well, three years prior yeah. before that. So Paul Bernardo was eligible for full parole in February of 18, 2018, and according to the Correctional Service Canada website, full parole is, quote, I'm sorry for these long quotes, but I thought yeah. it was interesting, because, I mean, especially because it's a different country, yeah, and they to know the difference, because yeah. I've never heard of day parole. That must no. just be a Canada yeah. thing, because we don't have that we here. We don't have that here. We got work release. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so full parole is, quote, a form of conditional release that allows an offender to serve part of a prison sentence in the community. The offender is placed under supervision and is required to abide by conditions designed to reduce the risk of reoffending and to foster reintegration of the inmate into the community. Under full parole, the person does not have to return nightly to an institution, but must report regularly to a parole supervisor and in certain cases to the police. Offenders serving life sentences for first-degree murder are eligible to apply for full parole after serving 25 years, end quote. That's kind and, of similar to what we got yeah. going on. And if you remember, Paul was arrested on February 17, 1993, so 25 years from that date is February 17, 2018, which is when he was eligible and he applied. So, Paul Bernardo, who is now 54 years old, stood before the parole board on October 17, 2018, where he was denied full parole. The mothers of Paul's victims, Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French, along with one rape victim from when he was the Scarborough rapist, uh -huh. gave emotionally charged statements at the parole hearing explaining why Paul's request should be denied. Paul also made several statements about how he's changed and how he's a different man, etc., 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 yada, yada. I don't even care. Um, Paul said, quote, it devastates me what I did in the past. I cry all the time. What I did was so dreadful, end quote. That's uh, not you think? I feel like if he, if he really meant what he said, he would have had a much bigger statement, much more moving statement. He did. I mean, he did. I just, oh. I picked I, I think, a piece um, of it. But I, think, I mean, he like, but he like rambled on and on and on and like didn't really say much of anything. I feel like he, um, like the extent of his, of his crimes and stuff is like, unable to be rehabilitated. rehabilitated yeah i don't think so i, don't, I mean i I, <clears throat> I agree with you like i don't think he's able to be yeah. rehabilitated ever like no like you're yeah a monster him. yeah and okay so this bothered me so paul's telling the parole board that he's a changed man he realized what he did was wrong and all this stuff all that jazz yet in may of 2018 just five months before he met with the parole board paul was ordered to stay in trial for allegedly having a homemade 
pin-shaped, shank-tipped with a skirt. You're that close in his to being eligible for parole, and you're going to... Or you're eligible for parole just waiting for your hearing, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're... So, according to court documents, the incident took place in February of 2018, the month, which is the month that he became well, eligible, Yeah. at the Maximum Security Millhaven Institution, where Paul is serving his sentence. However, Paul never actually goes to trial on the weapons charge because the charges were dropped on October 5th, 2018, just 12 days before he met with the parole board. Apparently, the charges were dropped because Canadian prosecutors determined there was no reasonable prospect of conviction. And I guess they figured he's not going to get parole anyway, so... Yeah. Um, Although Paul was denied parole because his life sentence is past that 25-year mark, the parole board is now required to review his incarceration every two years. So, October of this year... Well, oh yeah, February. Yeah, because, well, October is when he met with the parole board. That's but, what I was thinking. But, but his, yeah, 27 years would be February next month. Yeah. Well, this month, as, as of the time that this is airing. Yeah. Um, well, in addition to denying parole, the parole board also reaffirmed his status as a dangerous offender. So a date has not been set for the end of his sentence. So, I mean, since he's labeled as a dangerous offender, it's unlikely that he'll ever be released. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's currently incarcerated at the Maximum Security Millhaven Institution in Bath, Ontario, Canada, where he'll likely remain for the rest of his life. Good. As he should. Yeah. Can you imagine how, like, what, how angry he must be that, like, Carla just completely got off? Oh, absolutely. Now she's freaking volunteering at school. And has, like, three kids, like. Living her life. She's right. at 35. I mean. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's the gist of it. So kind of like our final thoughts wrap up portion of it Mm -hmm. um what's frustrating about this case to me is the fact that paul bernardo was questioned and provided a dna sample more than two years how many victims could have been saved he was linked um, via dna none of them would have died yeah like he would none of nobody would have gotten i mean they i mean you can't take back the rapes because they had already happened but like nobody would have the three young girls would not have died like it's just like i said i mean he probably would have never met Carla. Well, he had already met her. He did? Yeah, when he gave the DNA sample, he'd already met her. Okay. Yeah, but, like, if you remember, the interview and DNA sample was done in November of 1990 before any of these murders took place. Yeah. Like, I understand it was 1990 and DNA was still new, but, man, like, I can't help but be sad. Like, when I think about the fact that if they had just fast-tracked his DNA sample because, I mean, he was a dead ringer for that sketch. Uh Uh-huh. You know, I mean, three young girls wouldn't have been murdered. You know, it's just really upsetting to me. And it honestly, it sort of reminds me of Derek Todd Lee in episode one. I mean, had law enforcement just taken a sample of his DNA when he was arrested, as was newly required by Louisiana law, his DNA would have been on file and Derek Todd Lee would have been caught after Gina Wilson Green's murder, saving six other lives. You know, I mean, I know nobody's perfect and people make mistakes, but I know that like the what if law enforcement has come a long way. Since the 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For so sure. But, like, like, I feel like that's a common thing that we see. You know, people slipping through the cracks. And yeah, and it's like now they don't necessarily slip through the cracks with getting DNA like that. Um, A lot of time now it's, like, just laziness or, 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 or finding negli- them or negligent um, mm-hmm. handling of a crime scene or, you know. Or not reading somebody in their Miranda rights. Yeah. Or, and the second obvious frustrating thing about this case is Carla. Yeah, like, or Leanne. Yeah, whatever you're going by, you monster. 
it, I mean, it was proven by the videotapes that she was much more culpable and involved in these sexual assaults and murders than she originally led police to believe. Like, it bothers me that she got off with such a light sentence. I mean, 12 years, like, for murdering two young girls. Well, really three, when you include her sister. I mean, I most... And I would definitely include her sister. Yeah. Like, what the actual hell? I think she's... Like, I think she's the bigger monster. Yeah. I do. Like, she was smart, mm-hmm. when, like, throughout her trial, but... Not even a trial, but I think if you can rape, drug, kill your own, own sister, anybody, but yeah, more specifically, especially, especially your, your own sister, sister, right? Like that—that's just unforgivable. Like I know, and I don't want to be too quick to criticize, but really, like it—it it doesn't. It just, it really does seem like a deal with the devil to me. Like, this mm-hmm. woman is out there walking around with her freedom and Mary with, like, three Freaking. kids. Like, how is that fair? And she was a child predator, too. Yeah. So, it's like, how can you have kids of your own? Like, you're... It's disgusting yeah. to me that she is out like, there. Like, you raped your own sister. Who's to say you're not going to do it to your own kids? Right. I mean, maybe, maybe she's remorseful for what she's done because it's been... You know, and almost I, and 15 years. And I do go years. back to that. Like, she, you know, maybe she was really, like, at first, maybe she was fearful. Yeah. Maybe she does, is really remorseful. I don't know. I, I just know. feel like she falls into that, can't be rehabilitated. Yeah. But she also hasn't reoffended that we know of. Yeah. But yeah, like, it's been almost 15 years since she got out of prison, and she hasn't gotten into any trouble with the law that we know of. So maybe, maybe she is reformed. Who knows? I don't know. I just think it's ridiculous and a slap in the face of the victim's families that she got off with barely even a slap on the wrist when she was, like... So much more involved. Then she, yeah, she, yeah, I mean. But it also kind of reminds me of, like, the Alvin and Judith and Neely. Like, would they have committed these crimes if they weren't together? Yeah. You know? I definitely think Paul would have. Yeah. Carla, I don't know, though. Because she hasn't gotten in trouble with right. the law since she got released, so. Yeah, it's hard to say. And 2020 is 15 years since she got released, so, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's like, it's hard. Like, Dell's advocate. Like, it's yeah. really hard to, you know. So that's why we are who we are. We piece everything up. Yeah, this is together differently. Yeah, this is probably the most infuriating case for me that I think we've done. Yeah, so far they've all. I mean, they all infuriate me to some degree, but this one is just like, oh yeah, that one was bad. Yeah, I mean, this one's really bad too. Yeah, like I don't know. So anyway, well, y'all, that's the case of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homoka, the Ken and Barbie killers. Thank you for listening to Homicide Homegirls. If you enjoyed today's episode, head on over to our Facebook page and leave us a review or rate us on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. If you want to be the first to know when an episode is released, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Homicide Homegirls, Facebook at facebook.com slash Homicide Homegirls Podcast, and Twitter at Homegirls Pod. If you would like to suggest an episode, use the form located on our Facebook page. Once a month, we plan to answer fan-submitted questions in a segment we like to call hashtag AskTheHomeGirls. So be sure to use the form on our Facebook page to submit your questions. 